Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Abel, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, clarify your message, and make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the phrase toxic positivity, which is an obsession with positive thinking to the point one feels they must put a positive spin on all experiences, including those that are profoundly tragic. And I'm going to say even in every day, it means denying your feelings. And I think this came up a lot during the pandemic, at least it did for me. My guest for this episode is Dr. Darcy Sterling, who wrote a great piece on her blog called The Dark Side of Looking at the Bright Side, which I shared in my newsletter and it resonated. Let me tell you, I got a huge response to this, which is why I immediately reached out to Darcy and said, we have to discuss this. Will you come on my podcast? If you don't know Darcy, and you really should, Dr. Darcy Sterling is a licensed clinical social worker and the host of eNetwork's Famously Single, She's the former global ambassador of Tinder and her private practice alternatives counseling in New York City specializes in helping people thrive in their relationships. In addition to providing counseling services, Dr. Darcy teaches online courses on the psychology and science of love and relationships. Her newest course tackles one of the biggest relationship challenges, jealousy. By the way, if you are wondering how jealous you actually are, you can go to jealousyquiz.com and find out in about five seconds. Darcy, welcome. I am ecstatic that you are here with me. How are you? I am so excited to be here. I'm so happy to, uh, be talking about this topic because, um, as you said, during lockdown and particularly at the, in the first, which it's so interesting to even reference this in, in as a whole, like in the first half of the pandemic, cause it presupposes that we're like in the second half and like, please God, let us be in the second half of this pandemic. But in the first half of the pandemic, toxic positivity was like, oozing out of everybody's pores. Like you were meant to write a book. You were meant to become a chef. You were meant to use every second of quarantine life to do all the things that, I don't know, maybe you imagined you would do one day, maybe when you retired. Suddenly there was all this pressure on us to be doing these great things. But at the same time, I mean, certainly here in New York, we were all struggling with this great fear of death and it was everywhere. And so there was like this cognitive dissonance. There was this complete separation between the pressure that so many people felt on social media to become, you know, a gourmet bread maker. And my clients are like falling apart simultaneously at the top of the pandemic, which is something that we never experienced in my practice. I'm the lifeguard who doesn't get wet. I'm looking for trouble before anybody's drowning and I'm intending to redirect people before they're in trouble. So to have one or two clients in a crisis at one time is somewhat unusual. To have everyone in a crisis at the same time was kind of amazing in the worst ways imaginable. And then to be living through the same thing at the same time and managing my own feelings around it was just unbelievable. And people were reporting to me again and again and again, my God, why do I feel so much pressure to like only report the good and not talk about how terrified I am? 
And, and that does lead into the whole concept of toxic positivity. It's, it's airborne, you know, and we catch it on social media. Okay. You said it all right there. So one of the things I want to start with is it resonated with me personally on so many levels and not the least of which is because for years I've propelled myself forward by focusing on what I can control. That includes glossing over, honestly, often with feelings. Walk us through the difference between bright-siding and and when we slide into toxic positivity. For me, the difference is bright-siding is, it's a diluted version of toxic positivity. The minute you put the word toxic into any, into any, in front of or behind any phrase, it's the example of that phrase to the nth degree. It is that phrase dialed up and across all areas of one's life. So toxic positivity is going to be this, this absolute sort of zero sum, no negative feelings whatsoever are permissible. Whereas bright siding is, it's, it's a spice that you add to the stew. It's not the stew itself. Bright siding is the desire to focus more on the positive than on the negative, the tendency to focus on being positive because we all innately know that positive people are the people that are most liked. And so we all have this innate desire to be well-liked because we're tribal and, you know, through evolution, we couldn't, we couldn't exist without each other, which is part of what makes this pandemic so fucking crazy because the, the very thing at our core that drives us and allows us to survive crises throughout the ages is the one thing we couldn't do in this one. We had to be separate and apart. We had to be isolated. For anybody who hasn't read your blog, and certainly if somebody did not get to read this amazing piece, The Dark Side of the Bright Side, one of the things that I love that is totally unique about you is how brutally honest you are and how you speak about your life and you are you know, if I'm looking up authenticity in the dictionary, I'm going to see your beautiful smiling face. You wrote this from your own experience. And by the way, your wife, Steph, is also a therapist. Yes. And so one, I find this massively validating, quite honestly. And I'm not kidding. When I'm so excited when your posts, you know, arrive in my inbox, I, first of all, I always learn something. And usually I'm like, ah, it's not just me. Oh, that's so great to hear. No, it's not. And I'll tell you, I wish, I do often wish that people could be a fly on my wall because I think that the shame, embarrassment, and isolation that we all struggle with would dissipate so enormously if people could hear how common the struggle to be alive and human, how common it is. We all have the same struggles and fears, certainly to different extents than one another and with in different outfits, you know, there's different presentations of it. One of the ways that I try to manage my need to control everything is to be the first to point out my imperfections. So I'm that person at the party who's just like, oh, no, I do that bad thing. You know, if I make the joke first, nobody's going to make it about me. It's a, it's a defense mechanism. But it, it's woven its way into my brand. You know, growing up, my siblings used to say to me, Dorsey, Every thought does not have to come out of your mouth. And I wound up building a brand around that very weakness that I tried for decades to control 
it's ironic. The one thing I can't control is how unedited I am. But what it does for my practice, and I'll and I'll reference myself. So here you're going to see it in real time because I'm going to reference myself as a consumer, as a client of therapy. So me as a client in therapy, I found the blank slate, flat look of the therapists. There were some exceptions to this rule, but by and large, of the hundreds of thousands of dollars I've spent on therapy, of the I. I guesstimate two Hamptons houses that I've funded of therapists collectively. The vast majority of them, I wasn't even sure they had pulses in the room with me. I wasn't sure where their heads were. I wasn't sure what they were thinking because they didn't speak. And I would leave session oftentimes having gone three, four times a week having done the Darcy hour for an hour and in hindsight, had any of them just called me out on my shit offered up a tool or said, you know what? When I've struggled with this issue, I mean, just hearing that when I've struggled with, with this issue, it immediately, it's like a watershed moment where like the shame and isolation just melts off of you. So in many ways, I became the therapist that I always wanted and needed and became a proponent of appropriate self-disclosure. So I never liked to hold myself out as certainly not the poster child for mental health. I'm lucky if I'm three steps ahead of my clients and because they're so high functioning, they really light a fire under my tush to keep me moving in my own personal growth and development because they'll catch up to me very quickly. So I like to use examples from my own life. Uh, humor is part of how I practice. I use humor in everything I do. I do think we all take life a little too seriously so there's different ways of being less negative. It doesn't, you don't have to blow glitter and sunshine and rainbows on everybody and on everything. You can be lighthearted using humor. You can inject self-deprecation. You can do so many things other than glossing over the reality of the morbidity of the existential crisis that most of us are battling at every hour of every day. We don't have to go to such an extreme to pretend that the sky in front of us that is clearly about to thunder, we don't have to call it sunshine. You know, we gaslight ourselves when we do that. So I'm a proponent of using myself as an example. I feel that it dispels a lot of the shame and isolation that people tend to feel. And also, you know what? Every time I put out a personal story about myself and my own struggle, and I don't have a thousand people unsubscribe from my newsletter, I feel validated that it's okay to be less perfect. And that helps me in my own personal growth, just to bring it back to it being self-serving. Okay. I want to go back to something you just said that went pew, gaslighting ourselves. Wow. So can you just explain what gaslighting is and what it means now actually to gaslight ourselves? We invalidate ourselves. It's a way, it's part of the way. So we all have internal dialogues with ourselves. We talk to ourselves all day long. Often that dialogue is not very positive. When we gaslight ourselves, we invalidate the very thing that we're experiencing. So technique wise, even for yourself, how do you catch yourself? How do you change the dialogue and the script in your head? So the tendency to be on the 
toxic positivity end of the spectrum is often a reaction to fearing or feeling like you've got some forces in your life that are toxically on the other end of the spectrum, toxic negativity. We all know these people. I, I mean, I don't know. As I age, I remind myself, don't go too far to the other end, Darcy. Stay hopeful. Stay, don't be that jaded adult, you know, because with each passing year or decade, it's easier to begin seeing things through a very grim lens. So oftentimes that tendency to swing on the other, on the positive end of the spectrum is in response to being around or actually feeling like you're exposed to or becoming toxically negative. You know, and we all know those people. And, you know, we come out of the womb with a predisposition towards happiness about, I want to say, I'm kind of making this stat up. I'm going to be off by just single digits, though. So about 60% of the people come out of the womb not with a predisposition towards happiness. About 40% do, though. So come out of the womb, happy babies, they're easier to tend to, they're generally an easier fit with their parent or caregiver, they're easier to raise. But we've studied happiness and we've studied people who have this predisposition for happiness and we've, we've identified certain traits and habits that they engage in on a daily basis and we can teach those and do skills building and bring the... 60%, again, the stats off. We can bring those people who weren't born with a predisposition towards happiness to a much more happy baseline. Okay, cut. Now, my wife and me, I was born in the minority. I have an even mood. I'm generally left to my own devices. I'm a pretty happy, even person. My moods don't swing too much. I'm a passionate person. I have big, strong opinions about everything, unfortunately. My poor wife does not have this, this stable mood that I have. We've nicknamed her cranky motherfucker. We, but, but we joke about it because she, is, <laughs> she, she struggles. The poor thing struggles. Now, in normal times, it's, I balance her with having lots of people in the house and, you know, I've got my hobbies. I'm a dancer. She's, you know, got her hobby. She's out either, you know, boxing or playing hockey. Um, but, uh, you know, fast forward to a pandemic, the only person in the world I'm looking at is my wife. And she the, literally what's flashing on the news is her worst nightmare every second of every day because we're both germaphobes. But like this is like this is like her greatest fears on another stratosphere. And on top of it, all of her clients, as well as my own, are in a simultaneous crisis. And we're not, a, we're not able to see our family. We're not able to see our friends. We're totally isolated. I'm alone with her, all of which brings us back to that blog post that I wrote a few months back. You know, when it's the only person you're around I was a perfect example of somebody who swung in the direction of minimize. I started minimizing her feelings, her thoughts. And, and it wasn't done because I didn't want her to have her feelings. It was done because, I mean, quite honestly, we've studied what makes for a happy relationship. And both Steph and I are relationship therapists. So I teach relationship skills to individuals. She does it with couples. And we're steeped in this 
skills world of like, we believe, we drink the Kool-Aid, we believe that anyone can learn these skills. And so here I am in this pandemic with my wife and what we know about what makes for a happy relationship is there's like a four to one or a five to one ratio, positive to negative commentary that's supposed to happen. And I'm telling you, there were moments where it felt like it was the opposite. It was like four or five negatives to one positive at best. I'm going to say, this is my perspective. This is how it felt to be walking through the quicksand of 2020. You know, it was my, my tendency to in straight up invalidate her feelings or bright side her. Well, it's not as bad as you imagine. We can see, you know, the numbers are going down. We'll rent a house. We'll find a way. Some of that is done simply because there's an innate desire in myself to remain on the positive end of the spectrum and to remain constitutionally in that minority of people who does have a baseline of happiness. And when the only person you're seeing day in and day out is struggling the way my poor wife was, we were both struggling. Her struggle's just a little bit louder than mine. So it's, it can, it can take over the room in the family. So the dynamic between us becomes, I go to the other end of the spectrum, which starts to look like positive, toxic positivity. We become the yin and yang for each other. We're looking for home. We're looking to balance each other out. And, and as mindful as I try to be, as thoughtful as I try to be, I am so painfully human and would find myself time and time again saying to her, oh, it's not that bad, or look at this, and we'll do that. And it's like she just wanted to be in her feelings. When you have a partner who has you know, very little threshold for negativity, which I certainly did at moments during the pandemic, I couldn't even sit with her feelings. Like I couldn't even sit and hear about like the burnt English muffin and how disappointed she was over that because now she's going to have to go without breakfast. I couldn't even sit with that kind of feeling, that kind of innocuous, you know, means nothing. But I would be like, oh, it's not a big deal. You just order Starbucks. Like they'll deliver. DoorDash will do it. You know, she just wants to be upset over the burnt English muffin. She doesn't want me to fix it. But I think, you know, I tend to be a professional fixer. That's what I do. How do you sit with someone else's feelings? Well, I can tell you that Steph and I were in couples counseling three times a week for part of the pandemic. We are now, I am now happy to report that we're down to once a week. We are so stable now, especially compared to that. And it was so helpful. You know, when we get in front of a therapist, there's an objective person, and we all have a desire to impress that person. So whether we want to or not, and in couples counseling, the two of you, it's almost like a pattern interrupt. Oftentimes you'll keep your shit together for the entire hour and 15 minutes, at least in the beginning, keeping it together for an hour and 15 minutes winds up laying a tape in your brain's algorithm that it's possible to do that, which is something you may have forgotten because you've had lazy relationship skills for so long. And when you get out of couples counseling, now your brain still had, now it suddenly has access to this new way of being. Oh, I don't have to react to her the way I have been reacting to her because I didn't in front of the couples therapist. You know what I'm saying? So it acts as a pattern interrupt. And 
Nowhere do we bright side the way we do in relationships. In my world, people don't tend to complain about their relationships to one another because there's this unspoken expectation that like, A, you shouldn't need to. B, if you start complaining, it does it then become a slippery slope? C, is it betraying your partner by bringing in another person into your confidence? But what it winds up doing is leaving all of us alone in our relationship struggles so that we feel like nobody else has the same struggles as us because none of us in the absence of being transparent about our struggles in relationships, the implication is that everybody's okay. So I'm alone in my struggles. I want to go back to something you actually said in the very beginning about social media, because I feel like this amplifies what we've probably always felt for all of humanity, but it amplifies that is the isolation and that, um, everyone's having an awesome time, but us, everyone's got, Mm -hmm. everyone's on a better vacation than we're on everyone. All. So we, we see that and we start and we feel bad. And the voice in our head is saying unkind things. And then we bright side ourselves. As somebody who is in the world of media, I know how critically important it is for us to remain mindful of the feed that we're looking at in social media and that it is a very carefully curated version of somebody's life, very one-dimensional, very carefully selected. And even knowing that and even wanting to be as transparent as I am, you know, I make these Instagram and TikTok videos every week, um, teaching relationship skills on social media. And by the way, the perfect videos you see of me, there's five that you haven't seen that sucked, you know, to get that one good one. And I can't bring myself to post them. So even knowing how important it would be, I just can't bring myself to do it. I think about it every time I film. I think to myself, because of course I've got this commentary going 24-7 in my head. Um, And I'll let you know when I find a cure to that, but I haven't yet. So I I know how, how regulating and how normalizing it would feel for people to see the fails. But you know what, talking about media, and you know this from your own experience from, you know, hosting seasons of a show, is that it's stressful on set. Yeah. A million and one things go wrong. Working in media is collaborative, so it can be challenging for the control enthusiast. It triggers a lot. So with that, but we also know being a complainer on set is a career killer. Right. And especially if you have a vagina, especially if you have a vagina, because you are in air quotes, difficult. Correct. So I just want to get deep in the weeds on this because this is an example of how to we Let's go there, Barb. Let's do it. Because it's like, how do we really do it? Because this is where you're, you're bright siding and toxic positivity, if that's a word, your career in order to survive. But then you're killing yourself slowly with this song in yourself, in your, in your head. I do wonder if like the next iteration of Me Too is going to be like, is going to involve the structural sexism that is embedded particularly in media, particularly, um, you know, 
I, I mean, we could just, we could, we could braise in this barb. There's so many tentacles here that we could hang on to and, and do entire shows about, but I don't know. I don't know the solution to that. You've, you've always been the person I've turned to for guidance on that. You know, what is the tipping point between being authentic and, and not being thought of as somebody who's difficult to work with because you're not going to get another job. Everyone knows everyone in this industry. Your, your, your glam squad all knows each other. All the hairstylists know each other. All the makeup artists know each other. The lighting people know each other. The audio people know each other. The DPs, producers, everyone knows each other. So if, if you upset somebody or if somebody has a really negative perception of you, they're going to you know, be in other positions where they can hire. And at the very least, they're going to choose somebody else. And at the worst, they're going to tell other people what their, their perception of you is. So let me ask you, wh what is that tipping point? Well, one thing I just want to acknowledge right away is um, it goes up to a whole nother level if you're a woman of color. A hundred percent. And, and it's untenable. So to answer that question, and this does come up a lot, is one is, you know, something you, you learn with kids in sports is the 24 hour rule is not necessarily dealing with things in real time unless they're so egregious that you must. Right. I mean, there's very few things you can't revisit the next day. Right. Well, right. Except sometimes there isn't, which is where it's just like such outright, it's dangerous it's threat for sure. Right. Just acknowledge and these, and I've witnessed things and these things happen. Um, so a lot is, is actually just allowing yourself to sit with it, literally journal it, whatever it is. But this goes back to the notion of validating your, your feelings, because after you've been gaslit for so long, you start to think that you're wrong to think this, or you're overly sensitive or that you are difficult or that you're never going to be able to work 10 times as hard as everyone else, because you start to doubt your talent and your abilities the bar has been set so high. And I was like, I could never achieve that. So one is just to stop and, and really speak kindly to yourself and say, no, my feelings are real. And I, I but now let me think them through and, and look at this. And then it's really important to have, to identify probably start now in advance, people you trust, you can go to. And that's, what's become, I think, important everywhere. Well, one, it's just your support system, whether that is a manager agent, uh, which is, by the way, not always that supportive. Um, or and I was just going to say, but even but but most people don't have a manager and an agent. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm lucky to have I have that, but you know, and not most people don't have that. So, what do you do in the beginning? And how do you not play into that paradigm of like how do we break through this difficult to work with in air quotes description that is really a, a very thin veil around a woman who has feelings and didn't like something. Right. Because men are not difficult to work with. I've never heard a man described of as he's difficult. Never. Oh, don't get me started. Oh, I'm sure that, which is not to say that they're not difficult. I couldn't agree with you more. No, I, I just meant it comes up all the time. And just to give examples, I think Meghan Markle and the bullying thing out of Kensington Palace is a total example of this. I just think she probably like spoke up and said, that's not okay or whatever that was. And maybe she was a little American and direct about it. 
now, you know, it's a big international to do and how often female politicians are called out for stuff and female executives, you know, for being tough. I hope that's the next iteration of me too. Yes, but I agree with you. But going back to answer your question, my point is, is, is acknowledging your own feelings, but it's finding, um, trusted sources. So part of that too, is understanding, um, where are their affinity groups because there might be other women in or, um, women of color in so that you can go to trusted people and say, and these, and these groups exist more and more to have a way to report so that you can find someone objective to talk through it, to understand also to understand what are your workplace rights, right? you know, and how do you, if something's really horrible. So there's a difference between like, they wanted me to wear something that was horrible and demeaning, or I was talked to in a way or versus this is, this really needs to go to HR and maybe even a police issue, depending on, you know, like how horrible something is. There's, there's you know, obviously a range. For sure. But it's understanding. So in some ways, depending on where you are in your career, it's actually take the time now to research. What are your rights? Who are the advocates? What already exists to support you? Also understanding um, you're, you're always making choices and that's not to put it on in a negative way, but that you have choices about what you're going to put up with and understanding how far do you want to go? Because I think that's such a deeply personal issue. It is. It is. I'm wondering how we begin to be more authentic and change this label of being difficult so that I think one thing is to support every woman who speaks up because even seeing it, you know, some of the people who've been very vocal in me too, there's some side eye. There's some, oh yeah, her again. Right. So what do you mean when you say support every woman who speaks up? Just take a time, listen, uh, maybe participate in the conversation, Mm -hmm. post, retweet, speak about, address the fact that the strength in numbers that we all need to be speaking about it. It's a little bit of a you know version of be the change. Yeah. Don't be passive, be active. What about those of us who are a little bit older? Um, like feeling a, a moral obligation to turn around, offer a hand down the, down the ladder and pull somebody up. What do you think about that, Barb? I wholeheartedly believe in it. I have always felt um, that we need a sorority. You know, just the the world, society needs a sisterhood. Mm. And that those of us who were lucky enough to have, to be further up the ladder than somebody else, whether it's, you know, just because we're older and have been on the planet longer, or because, you know, we, we won the genetic lottery, you know, our brains work in a certain way that media appreciates. You know, we look a certain way that media appreciates and society values. That there's an obligation to make sure that younger women or women who are um, a couple steps behind us, that we help them and we guide them and we mentor them. And, you know, and that, that happens without money. You know, that happens out of the goodness of your heart. How do we get more women to do that? I think it starts one at a time. It starts with us being who we say we want to be, mm-hmm. right? And start with one. But I, and then actually also to your point, this is great. It's also with intention, not like I would love this to happen. I'm wishing and hoping it was happen. I'm making it happen. Yeah. I'm active. I'm doing it is a very 
different way to approach this. And so then ask yourself, so what can I do about that today? What can I do about that this year? How will I know when I've contributed? So I have a, one more question for you. Okay. Besides Ask Dr. Darcy, one of my own, honestly, one of my favorite resources, what are some of your essential go-tos? Like, who do you follow? Who are your thought leaders? What do you love reading? Is anything like making, wowing you lately? I'm obsessed with podcasts. They allow me to absorb information while I'm, while I'm doing physical things. Um, I love Ezra Klein, New York Times columnist and podcaster, former, um, he was the former host of the Ezra Klein show on Vox, and now he's at the New York Times. Um, I, I love uh, I love Code Switch. I love the the argument. I love Chris Hayes, um, MSNBC. Chris Hayes has a podcast called Why Is This Happening? It's amazing. I like Sway. What do they all have in common for you? What do you like about them? They take current day topics and they discuss them through a different lens, a more nuanced lens and offer a different perspective on it. You know, it is so easy to get caught up in this, in the soundbite culture that we're in and to so Ezra Klein does a very long form, and and I have to tell you, I have ADD off the charts. The Daily used to be my favorite thing in the world because it was 20 minutes long, which they figured is the average commute time that it takes for somebody to get from their house to their work. And when I first started listening to podcasts, I could just about get through that. Ezra Klein goes over an hour every single week, twice a week. I sometimes listen to him three times Three times I'll re-listen to him because he's so riveting and he's so smart. And the nuances through which he sees things, it's very easy to, you know, to hear terms like cancel culture and decide, oh, I'm against that. It's never good. Um, or, oh, I'm for it. You know, power to the people. He he puts things in a perspective and drills down to such a granular level, but then pulls out and gives you this, this context for it that's historical. That is what it, that's, that's what it is. It's a different perspective on what, you know, it's very easy to just go through your day absorbing the sound bites and regurgitating them to your friends and family over the dinner, over, you know, the dinner table. But the extent to which he's able to drill down on, on issues and then pull back and give you a historical context, that to me helps me learn so that I don't have to memorize. I can It can actually become part of my vernacular and I can speak to it because I get it in my essence. You know what I mean? Oh, I 100% do. I'm a big fan of Ezra Klein. And what you're, to me, I distill that down to brilliant mind, incredible analysis, phenomenal communicator. He literally, his, you know how most of us use like a very small portion of our brains. I am sure that his entire head is, is encasing a brain that's three times the size of the rest of ours and that he should donate his brain to science because he's actually able to utilize almost all of it. That guy's IQ. I mean, he, he needs a Mensa for Mensa. That's what he needs. 
Okay, I am now officially closing this week's um, meeting of the Ezra Klein fan club. <laughs> we love you. And I love you so much, Darcy. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you for listening to Camera Ready and Able. If you're not subscribing to Ask Dr. Darcy, you really should. So just go up to AskDrDarcy.com and plug your name in. It is so good. And if you're not a subscriber to my newsletter yet, I would love to have you. So skip on over to ableintermedia.com, get your free copy of 12 Tips to Succeed on Camera, and you're automatically on my list. And as always, thanks so much for your support. The feedback means the world. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button here if you haven't already. Thank you. Thank you.